0: Amen. You may be seated in here in church family. I want you to just recognize the last line of that song, Yet Not I But Through Christ in Me, comes directly from the chapter that we're studying right now. In fact, next week we will be studying that passage uh, that says, I can do all things through Christ um, who strengthens me. Uh, So it's not in me, it's all in him. Thank you, Praise Team, for helping us to remember that great truth. That great song is filled, and that's from City of Light, in case if you're wondering where that song comes from and several of the other ones that we sing, it's a, it's a band called City of Light. You can see them on YouTube or on the Internet, and you can learn a lot more about their music there. Well, this morning we come to um, another key two verses as part of a central theme in the book of Philippians. And so the question is this, do you want peace Do you want peace? And if you want peace, then you need to think godly and do right. You need to think godly and do right. Now, I just want to say that this message, just like the book of of Philippians, the letter of Philippians, is written expressly to Christians. It is written to people who have come to know, have been converted to life in Christ, faith in Christ. And so this title that I want to be very, very careful that this is a title that assumes God's grace has redeemed you. Because if I don't say that, if I don't make a big deal of the fact that um, if you want peace, you need to think godly and do right, then you could have folks that hear a message like this and see a title like that, and they begin to think, oh, I guess I just need peace. I just need to think godly and do right. If I'll think godly and do right then I can have God's peace. Now, we preach against something called moralism in the life of this church. It's not that we don't want you to be moral, it's not that we don't feel like we need to be moral, we do, but moralism is not how you establish a relationship with God. We come to a relationship with God through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. That's how that is established. But for Christians who have, have come to that, there are some things and we see this in the book of Philippians there are some things that are that are instructed to us to do so that we can experience the peace of God and there's many Christians that that aren't walking and experience aren't walking in the peace of God they're not experiencing the peace of God they're not experiencing the, the presence of God they don't they don't sense his nearness um, and it's precisely because they're not doing Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 through really verse 9. And so that's, that's really the theme that is here. We've talked about the fact that the Middle East has a peace process and various entities around the world or organizations around the world or conflicts around the world have a peace process. Well, the peace process with God is what we've been studying for the last five weeks, And let's notice here with me, and I've left all of the answers in here, and it comes from chapter 4, verse 4 through 7. And uh, I want to read that again, and then I just want to remind you of what's here. In verse 4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. On your outline, you may want to write up there to the top, the Lord is near. That's what many uh, translations would say there. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in what? Everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then look at this. Here's the, here's the great desire. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now the whole world sees peace as a value, in to some degree or another, or they desire that. I, I don't know anyone who just who just cannot wait for agony and turmoil. Um, the world wants peace, but the world doesn't know how to have peace. And what we see is is that the God of peace, the God who knows how to make peace and to give peace is the God that says, come to me and you will have peace. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So let's look at this review. Number one, decide to rejoice always. If you want God's peace, you just need to, by faith, come to a place of rejoicing in the good times and in the bad. And that God is glorified as we are trusting in Him, rejoicing in Him, not in our circumstances. Number two, be gracious. And not just be gracious, but be gracious to everyone. You see, this is the way of God. God is a God of grace. He has grace upon those who have, who have not given him what he deserves. And yet we are called to do what he does, to give grace to everyone. Number three, to remember that the Lord is watching and that the Lord is returning. He, he tells us to be gracious to others and he calls us to, to remember that he sees us and that we're accountable to him, and he's returning. And the beautiful part of that is that can be so encouraging to us that we remember that he's not just left us here, but he is saying, I am returning, and I am going to make all things new. So you have nothing to be anxious about. In fact, that's number four. Instead of worrying, because I'm returning, because I've made promise, instead of worrying, pray about everything with a grateful heart. And then number five is the result of all those four things. Enjoy God's unexplainable peace. A peace that you just, you can't explain. A peace that you cannot rationalize. It is a peace that goes beyond the circumstances. Well, this morning we come to verse 8 and 9 as we finish this section of Scripture. And I want you to see these. Look what it says there in verse 8. And circle the word finally. Finally. Because that's kind of what indicates to us that this is kind of the, the, um, the capstone on the whole thing. This is, this is a bit of the, the conclusion of it all. It's a very, very important indicator there to us that all of this fits together and this fits in with what comes before it. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers, and let me remind you that this is written to Christians. Again, as I started with this, saying that this is assuming faith in Jesus Christ. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, And if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Now, I want to say, and I want to point out just a couple of things here as a result of this. One of these are not on the outline, but I want you to notice in verse 8 and 9, the grammatical structure of it is kind of interesting. You know, a lot of times when we're just giving out information, we will, we will not make it so dramatic. We will put words together with a comma and, and just kind of let that be it. notice this, the, the qualifier of whatever is, I want you to notice that, the whatever is qualifier is repeated over and over and over again. And so what that is saying to us, this is a grammatical device to slow it down and to formalize it. He's saying, finally brothers, I want you to really pay attention to this and he's, he's beautifully, because think about it, he could have said this, finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent. You know, what does that do to it? It deformalizes it a little bit, right? But what he's doing is he's slowing it down. He's making it very deliberate, and he wants us to see these individual things, and really process it. And then in verse 9, he does the same thing with Kai, K-A-I, which is and. He says, what you have heard, or excuse me, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. We see those again. Now, you don't usually talk like that, right? So these are grammatical devices that help us see the beauty of the instruction that we're being given, and the formality of the instruction that we're given. God's Word is always just so very, very clear, and and if if you'll start to learn, start to read God's Word, start to notice how God uses everything from vocabulary to syntax to structure. He's he's speaking to us in different ways, and it's it's a beautiful way, knowing that God knows the way our minds work, and He knows what we need in order to see what we need to see. A couple of other things I want you to notice um, from this overview of both chapter uh, 4, verse 4, the the top section, 4 through 7, and verses 8 and 9, they have a similarity, and I want you to notice this. Notice that that there's a pattern of instruction that results in a reward. And so in verses, just look up there at the top, instruction that results in reward. So look at the top, Verses 4, 5, and 6 are instructions. Rejoice. Let your reasonableness. Don't be anxious. Pray. And then look at verse 7. There is the promise. There is the reward. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, and look in verse 8. We see instruction again. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable. He goes through the list. Look at the end of verse 8. He says, think about these things. And by the way, that's an imperative, and it's in a continuous sense. And so what he's saying is this is a command. This is an instruction, the, the, the verb think on these things. It's a command, it's instruction, and it's in an ongoing sense. That's in an ongoing form. And so you're continuing to think on these things. You're continuing to consider these things. So there's the instruction in verse 8 and 9, and then look at the end of verse 9, we see um, a promise. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So if you haven't noticed it already, look at verses 4 through 6 are specific practical instructions. Verse 7, the promise of the reward of what? God's peace. He says, you're going to have my peace. And then verses 8 and 9 are specific and general practical instructions. We're going to look at both of those. And then there is the promise of what? The reward of God's presence. He is saying, I will be with you. The God of peace, underline that up there in the top, will be with you so god is promising his peace and he's promising his presence now that brings me to the next thing i want you to notice here fill this in this is at the bottom notice that god's peace is closely associated with god's presence and we see that throughout the bible we see the idea that god is bringing his peace to us as he is with us. Now, that's for his children that are right with him. Now, if you are not right with God and you have his presence, you're going to have anything but peace. In fact, you are going to experience his wrath. And so we, we see here that as as we have his peace because of his grace toward those who are with him, we see that God is using that to calm us and to reward us and to cause us to be able to experience him in a relational way. Look at Psalm 16, verse 11. We see this idea of his presence and the rewards of that. He says in Psalm 16, 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your Right hand, our pleasures forevermore, and so in in this passage in Philippians we're seeing this principle that as we have God's presence we experience His peace as we are seeking to obey Him and seeking to be right with Him and that's what this passage is all about. Flip the page and go to the priority of thinking, and um, I want you to circle that word at the top: priority of thinking. The word thinking. Because that's an important part of what we're going to emphasize here. And I want you to notice in the box on the page at the top um, of page 2, it says at the end of verse 8, think about these things. Now, we're going to look at what those things are in just a minute, but we need to see the instruction that he is listing these things and telling us we need to think about these things. Um, If you have some, some translations of the Bible, it will say dwell on these things. So it's, a, again, it's a continuous idea of you continue to think about these things, you continue to dwell on these. Now, I just want to say we need to make sure that all of us are on the same page concerning what the Christian life and really is and how we are to approach it. Um, and so I've made some statements here. First of all, the Christian life is most predominantly based upon knowable, knowable truth. God is a God of truth. God is a God of not just concepts, but realities um, that can be put into a knowable form. Um, and so, what we see in all of creation is that God exists um, because where there is a watch, there is a watchmaker, where there's a universe, there's a universe maker. Uh, That's part of the picture of what we would say in the evidence of God is that we are here. The evidence of God is that creation is here. Um, But then God has very knowable truth that we can know, not just from creation, but specific revelation of his word. This is where we learn his name. This is where, where we learn his character. This is where we learn uh, the way he thinks and the way he operates and the way we were made to think and the way we were made to operate. In fact, it's his word that shows us that we are not like him because we're sinful. It's his word that reveals to us that he is a gracious God, a loving God, because he has a plan of redemption. It's his word that tells us how to come to know his name and how to come into right relationship with him. So all of this has to do with knowable truth now there's a lot of people that are a little bit confused about that because they when they think about religion or when they think about god and and for some people it's even the idea of christianity they think about feelings they think about emotions and so what we need to we need to recognize here the christian faith is most predominantly based upon knowable truth not emotion Now, is there emotion in Christian faith? Well, there certainly can be. I hope that there is. God made us as emotional beings. But we don't drive our faith based upon our feelings. You know, some people come to church because it just makes it, they say, I go to church because it makes me feel better. I hope that you will, if that's you, I hope that you will progress from, I go to church because I want to feel better, to I go to church so I can learn about God. Learning about God will take you further than a feeling. Learning about God will bring you into real faith instead of just experience. Now, we have a real problem with this in the world today, especially in the name of Christ, that many, many people will will go to church and they, they wonder if God is still with them. And so part of the reason they go to church is to verify that he's still with them. And they base that upon A feeling that based that upon a feeling that comes from the music or that comes from the fellowship or that comes from the the uh, even sometimes the teaching of scripture, the the idea of a, a story that touches their heart or, you know, a poem that grips them or something like that. It's it's really based upon feelings, friends, feelings come and go. But the facts of who Christ is and what he's promised us is where we need to ground our faith because feelings can deceive you. Jeremiah 17:9 says, the heart is evil above all things and desperately sick and it says who can know it? Our hearts can be deceived. Well our minds can be deceived too, but it's it's the very um, verifiable, truth of God's Word that can correct us. So, it's not based upon emotion. Number two, it's also not based upon something called credulity, C-R-E-D-U-L-I-T-Y, for those of you who don't have the PowerPoint, credulity. Credulity is the idea of blind or naive faith or belief. It's the idea that, oh, well, you just have to you, you come to God and you just have to believe that he is and that there's, there's really no real rational evidence that stands behind that. And I would say that is patently false. Uh, I had a conversation this week with a young man that is kind of working through some of these ideas and working through the idea of faith and who God is and everything else. And, and I, I shared with him this very point that our faith is not based upon blind faith. Our faith is based upon an extremely fortified and well-educated, a factual faith. The fact that we're alive, the fact that we see the world as it is, the fact that his word reveals so much about who he is and tells so much about who we are, that is a tremendous amount of evidence that we base it on. It's not blind faith. Now, to some degree, it is obviously, there is faith that we, that we must come to God in faith and believe that he is. I mean, that's, that's certainly part of, of this, this whole picture, but it's not a blind faith at all. Our God is a God of evidence. The last thing I want you to see here is that the Christian faith is most prominently based upon noble truth, not rituals, fill that in, rituals, or recitations or regulations. Uh, I don't know why those all came out as R's. I didn't mean for that, just kind of the way it came out. So. Um but rituals, you know. There's some people that their religion and their relationship with God, they perceive the whole thing as we have to. You have to do this. You have to do that. You know. You get up. You put on your best clothes. You go to church, and you you do that. You know. And you go through a ritual, or maybe it even has to do with the Lord's Supper or Mass, taking the Mass, taking the Lord's Supper, or maybe it has to do with various other things that either daily or weekly, or annually, are done. My friends, the Christian life and the Christian faith is so much more than rituals or recitations, things that you would repeat and repeat and repeat. Those are very religious ideas. Or regulations, think about that, the legalism of certain things. There's some people that they run their Christian faith based upon the legalism of a self-righteous conduct um, that is seeking to be played out. Um, It is so much more than that, and that's part of what we're seeing in this passage. It has to do with thinking about truth. Notice this. The Bible reveals that God is knowable, and he has made us to be rational beings who can know him. He, He is knowable and he's made us to be rational beings who can know him. And that is, this is all about this little phrase in here at the end of verse 8 that says, Think on these things. Um, as, look at Proverbs 23, verse 7. As a man thinks within himself, so is he and this is in the context of debauchery this is in the context of a man who you know perhaps he 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 is looking on the inside and there's a he keeps going back to the alcohol or he keeps going back to this vice sin and so he this 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 perception of himself and this perception of this vice sin holds him and it's and and that is part of what does it is that as he thinks within himself so is he look at the Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, come now, circle it, let us reason. Let us reason together. Our God calls us to use our cognitive ability based upon the truth that he gives us to know him and to know what he wants. And so Christians need to be thinkers Christians need to not check their brains at the door when they walk in the church or when they go to have their quiet time and just look for a feeling or just look for a ritual or something like that. God made our minds amazingly powerful. And his truths and who he is is so deep. And he's he's just given us a hint in this tiny little document here called the Bible. He's given us just a hint of who he really is. And he says to us, come and learn of me. Learn the way I work. Learn the way I've designed the universe to work. And this brings him great, great glory when his human beings who he made to think start to use the minds that God has given them. One of the great r- lies of liberalism, one of the great lies um, of even attacks on the gospel of Christ are that, that Christians are not thinking people. And, and part of that can come from a cultural Christianity um, that, that over these, you know, Christians used to be known as Extremely, extremely intellectual, um, and it, it, the, the learned people. Um, when you look back to the Middle Ages, um, Christians who had really been uh, uh, students of God's word, those became the intelligentsia of the Western world. Um, and so, and, and very often, it was it was true learned pastors and learned theologians who were known to be the highest. Of the intelligentsia, because there's so much in God's word to know, but over the decades and over the centuries, um, that that began to wane as cultural Christianity would take over, and people would just ride on the the, the Christian culture more than they would ride upon knowing God in His truth. And so, you know, we need to push back against that. In fact, Christian culture isn't surviving. Christian culture is crumbling. It's it's falling down. And so true Christianity is going to reemerge, I believe. And it's going to require, let me tell you, because if you don't know who God is, if you don't know what he's doing, if you don't know um, the deep truths of God, your your Christianity won't survive. Your Christianity won't survive with your kids. Your Christianity won't survive... Um, when crisis comes, your Christianity won't survive when persecution comes. And all all of that is coming. And so we better know what we believe. We better know who God is. We better know deeply the things of God. And that's part of what we see that the Apostle Paul is reminding the Philippians about, is that these are the things that you need to think about. And he's ultimately, we're going to see some key things here of what he's saying to us. So Notice, the, the, fill this in, the ability to think clearly about spiritual matters as seen, really, these are as seen in Scripture. There's two of them that we want to look at. The first one is the unsaved mind, and then I'm going to skip ahead just so you know where we're going, and this verse is the saved mind. So the first one is the unsaved mind, and then the second big point down there above 1 Corinthians is the saved mind. So let's look at the unsaved mind first when it comes to, the ability to think about spiritual matters. First of all, the Bible makes very clear, Romans 1, 28, and 1 Timothy 6, 5, that we are depraved in our thinking. We are broken in our thinking. We we, we don't think about the holiness of God, and we don't think like the holiness and the intricacy of God. We, We are broken in our moral thinking. Number two, we are focused on the flesh. That's one of the great problems of the fall is that we are focused on the here and now. From the very beginning with Adam and Eve being tempted and thinking about the, the here and now instead of the instruction of God, and then all of the sin that has come into the world after that, in part, it's because in our fallenness, we focus on the flesh. We focus on the here and now. And then closely associated with that, it, we think our minds become hostile toward God. That's what happened in the fall. Um, we are rejecting God in our flesh, in ourselves. We are born, as David would say, in sin my mother conceived me. And the picture is, is that the sin that is passed down from Adam, from Adam, the Adamic sin, and all of that condition causes us to be hostile toward God. Now, look at Romans 8 out there in the box on the side of the page, uh, and it has to do with that, that one focused on the flesh uh, just above it and hostile toward God. Look what it says in Romans 8:5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. So you see, these are the unsaved, but now look at the comparison. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Do you see how this directly goes with Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9? He's saying if you set your mind on the things that are around you, on the flesh, you're, you're simply going to pursue the things that are going away. You're going to pursue the things that are dying. But if you set your mind on the things that are of God's spirit, you have life and peace. Look at verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So friends, unless Christ regenerates us, we cannot come up with the thoughts of God. We cannot pursue and think like God. We are broken this is part of the condition of the brokenness of the world can't even see it can't even, i mean we we talk about well let's keep going here it's hardened to spiritual well the, the one above that is foolish 1 corinthians 2:14 says our our spiritual thinking is foolish our spiritual thinking is hardened to spiritual truth we we're, we're resistant to spiritual truth, you know, when you hear a, a theme of righteousness or you hear a thing of, of holiness, there's something inside of us that goes, "Why? That's so stupid. That's dumb." That, that when there's a response to the things of God like that, it, it can be—it's our flesh that is reacting to that. And let me tell you that even as a Christian, you can think in a fleshly way. There's sometimes when somebody says something. And I, don't, I haven't really thought about it, but my first reaction is, oh, that's dumb. I Any mean, of you ever do that? And, and then you start to look at it a little bit more, and you learn about it a little bit more, and you learn about what God's Word says in a wider way, and you go, oh, my goodness, that's not dumb. That's true. I mean, you see, that's God renewing our mind with his truth. That's God replacing falsehood with truth. Now, a prideful person who has not submitted themselves to Christ will continue to rebel against the things of God. They'll consider it foolishness. They'll consider it stupid. But if Jesus has come and broken down that dividing barrier of sin between you and God, if Jesus has come and given you his spirit, as we're going to see here, things change a little bit. But Okay, so hardened to spiritual truth. Uh, three-quarters of the way down, blinded by Satan. Go look it up, 2 Corinthians 4.4. Futile, Ephesians 4.17. Ignorant, Ephesians 4.18. Defiled, Titus 1, verse 5. So our thinking in unsaved condition is very, very broken. But the amazing grace of God is, is that when he comes and he saves us, he renews our mind. He comes and he rescues our mind. And he comes and he gives us the thoughts of Christ. Now, I've included this these 10 verses here underneath this, or 11 verses here underneath this. I really want you to see this, because this is so beautiful. And so just follow it along. Come on, get your get your brain in action here if you've drifted a little bit come on look at the saved mind and notice what happens with the saved mind in second Corinthians chapter 2 verse 6 through 16. look what it says. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Now, talking about the mature, he's talking about Christians, and they're growing, they're they're coming along, they've been been brought to maturation in Christ. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Verse 7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor nor the heart of man has imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him this whole picture that God's way is so gloriously better and his way is so and it's even it's even hidden from a broken world except that God moves look in verse 10 these things God has revealed to us through the spirit for the spirit searches everything even the depths of God for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God, verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Interesting. It doesn't just say the spirit that, like an attitude, but here it's saying the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God you see it's God's spirit that opens your mind to understand God verse 13 and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the spirit underline it here I've underlined it for you interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual Verse 14, the natural person, see, this is the unsaved person. Verse 14, right out to the side, the unsaved. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are what? Folly, for they're folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. The idea is he's he's with God and and he is thinking along the lines of God. And he's he, it's not it's not up to people to look at whether or not he thinks it's right. They can look to God and see that God says it's right. Verse 16: for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That last phrase is so important. Look what it says: We have the mind of Christ. So Christianity is not just about emotions. It's not just about uh, blind faith. It's not just about rituals or recitations or or regulations. Christianity is about thinking the thoughts of God and knowing the thoughts of God, knowing the depths, as this talks about, of God, and that the Spirit causes us to be able to do that. Do you see why this... This sermon and this idea is really aimed at those who have been regenerated in Christ. Notice this at the bottom of page two. God's grace at work, gracious work of salvation brings his spirit, when he saves us, his spirit comes brings his spirit who reboots our thinking. Um, you know, with Windows or sometimes with Macintosh computers, um, and by the way, I, I like Windows computers a whole lot better. They're not toys, they're real tools, but anyways, and I know I just probably alienated half the crowd, but we have this nice debate on, on staff about, you know, the toys that Steve Jobs came up with versus, you know, the real tools that that uh, Bill Gates came up. But anyways, I know, I know, they're going to the moon with the Macs. But um, anyways, um, I, I, I want us to see and I want us to understand that any operating system in a computer sometimes gets mixed up and it gets either corrupted or it gets confused. And back in the day when Macs used to bomb or Apple computers used to bomb, there was actually a little bomb that was, that was on there. It would show up. The image showed up. And that was like the blue screen of death um, for a Windows-based computer. But, but what happens when everything goes wrong and it's broken and it won't work? It can't think. You have to start it over so it will think. Now let's, let's just apply that idea to what God does when he saves us. This thinking that was broken and gets stopped and just, just can't function primarily spiritually. I'm not saying that lost people can't think. There's many brilliant minds that are able to come up with astrophysics and micro, you know, molecular biology and uh, many, many other beautiful sciences and beautiful concepts and philosophies that, that, are, that are of those things. But we're talking about thinking about the things that are eternal. We're talking about thinking about the things that are of God. That brokenness, when we get saved, gets gets rebooted. And he now allows the system to begin working again the way that he has created us to think and to work. And that's what these verses are about. These verses are about how should the rebooted mind think? How should the mind of the Christian truly think? Well, let's go and let's see the priority of thinking. This is talking about what God's people are to think about. And there is a list there. Look at the top. In verse 8, it says on the top of page 3, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So, I want you to see here that God tells his people what to think about. God tells his people what to think about. And the first one there is, you see, whatever is true. And I was so blessed as I started studying this because it just makes so much sense to me that the first one that's mentioned here is truth. Because you you have to recognize that Everything in the world is based upon whether it's true or whether it's false. In a sense, we live in a digital world of that, even spiritually, that either something's true or it's false. And so I want you to see this here with me. In John 17, or, or first notice, whatever is true, naturally mentioned first because the truth is what unlocks everything. The truth of God is what unlocks all all understanding that is especially of any eternal significance. John 17, verse 17. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, this is just before he would go to the cross, he prays for us and he says to the Father, your word is truth. So he's recognizing that the words of God, God always speaks truth. John fourteen six, he would say of himself, um, even that same evening, he would say, I am the way, and circle it, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is truth. Look at Psalm 19.9. David wrote, the judgments of the Lord are true. Psalm 1:19:151. all your commandments are truth. John 8, 32, Jesus said this, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You see, this is the picture that the bondage of falsehood has been broken. You can actually know the truth. And so in, result, in, in regards to all this, when we think about what should Christians think about, and especially if they want the peace of God and if they want the presence of God, this is very important because we, we're going to think. There's no way to stop thinking. Now, Ann and Andrea, when they were in middle school, they, they came running to the dinner table one night and they said, Dad, we learned today that middle school boys actually have been documented as, the, as being able to think about nothing. You know, because I would always tell them, you know, your mind is always thinking. You need to be careful about what you're thinking. And they said, Dad, that's not true about middle school boys. Research is starting to show that they can, they're actually capable of thinking about nothing. And I don't know the truth of that. And perhaps some cognitive scientist could tell us about that. But um, but we are thinking. And, and as a general rule, we really are thinking about something. I know that some of you look at your spouse and you go, no, no he doesn't, or she doesn't think. No. No, we are thinking. We need to be careful about what we're thinking because it can determine whether or not we have God's presence and God's peace and whether or not our thoughts are actually glorifying the God who has made us and saved us. So truth is so uh, beautifully pictured at the very beginning. Whatever is honorable, this is what is worthy of respect. It's the opposite of shameful. It's the opposite of shameful. Whatever is just, this is what is right and straight. It's not bent. It's not corrupted. It's not crooked. We're to think about whatever is pure. This is holy and clean. Fill this in. It's not contaminated. It's not unclean. Whatever is lovely, Now, the word lovely, um, it's a hypoxlegomena, which means it only occurs one time in the New Testament here. So they they have to go look at the way it's used in even other literature to get an accurate translation of it. And for English, a good translation of this word is lovely. And it's the idea of that which is sweet and gracious. It literally means toward affection. So it's that thing that you look at it and you go, oh, I... I would like that." So it's, it's that which is lovely, it's that which you would like. And I put on here, just for you to imagine with me, it's the raspberry you want in the box. Okay, you get a bunch of raspberries. When you are sitting there eating raspberries, do you, do you just take whichever one is there? Very often not. If we're going to be honest, you're looking at that little box of raspberries and you, you choose this one over this one, perhaps very often, especially if there's some that aren't so good. I don't know anybody that goes after the ones that look a little either puny or they look a little smashed or they look a little gross, you know, um, I, I don't know, but I, I, don't, I don't think that we, we're choosing the more lovely one. That's the idea here. It's the, it's the thing that you're drawn to, to have. Um, it's not the ugly or the repulsive. Um, Whatever is commendable, this is that which is highly regarded. If you think you have a, uh, an employee that is commendable, you, you would say, I hold this person in esteem. They're, they're, I, they're recommendable. It, it, it's, this, is, this is someone who has my respect. Praiseworthy. If there is any excellence... And this is the picture of that which is perfect or done completely right. We would say it this way, and I I just kind of put this phrase on here, the way it ought to be. So when when we look at the things that Christians are to think about, we're to look at the things that have these characteristics. And I think it's very interesting. Do you notice that all of these could describe God himself? Fill that in. Do you, dis, do, you, do you notice that God himself is what these things describe? And think about that. God is true. God is honorable. God is just. God is pure. God is lovely. He's commendable. He is excellent. He's the way he ought to be. And so the things of God are these things. And so this is what we are to think about. Now, friends, it's very possible to think about the things that are untrue. It's very possible to, to live thinking about the things that are not honorable. All the things that are not just. They're not right. The things that are unclean and that are impure and that are dirty. The things that are repulsive. It, you know, I, there are some things that I just don't understand. I, I don't understand horror films. And I, and I think that that's probably good. That, that maybe, and I'm not being braggadocious here, but I'm just saying that's, a, that's maybe a, an indicator that I know the Lord in that he has caused me to not like horror. But, you know, I mean, that's, that's like an extreme example, and I don't want to give that as the only example because there's a bunch of other ones that are not so um, horrible as that, so, sorry, um, that are not so extreme as that, right? Um, but the idea of horror, I, I mean, I, I hope that you as a Christian are starting to realize that horror films are like a really big red flashing light saying, oh, no, these are not the things of God. The things that stoke fear, the things that stoke violence, the things that stoke pain, the things that, so I mean, to be entertained by that, to be intrigued by that. Oh, that's very ungodly. That's not the way of God. Okay, so there's an extreme example, but we could start backing up through all of the other storylines. We could start backing up through all of the other genres and start asking ourselves, where do God's people find entertainment? We need need to be very careful about that. In fact, I've started to think through this a little bit, and I want you to see here, challenges and assaults and alternatives. So I'm, I'm giving three kind of classifications of these to the call to think on godly things. So we, we are called to think on godly things, but there are challenges to that. There's assaults upon the idea that you need to think about godliness and not ungodliness. And there are alternatives to thinking about godliness. So the first one that I've listed here is anti-intellectualism. Now, God has made you with a rationale. God has made you to think. And there are things that cause thinking to go down. You need to follow this. This will will affect your peace. This will affect God's presence in your heart. Our God is a God that is knowable, and he wants us to know about him, and he wants us to know his truth. And so anti-intellectualism just says, kind of as we said at the beginning, it's just based in emotionalism or experientialism, you know, I've just got to experience, it's also sensationalism. That means it's playing on the senses, not at all on the mind. We need to be careful about those things. We need to see that anti-intellectualism is not good. And, you know, Satan is crafty, and, and he, he would often accuse Christians of, of being anti-intellectuals, when in fact... True Christianity is very intellectual, and it should be, not for intellect's sake, but for knowing God. Notice the next one here. One of the oldest ones in the book is gossip. I mean, you could be 4th century B.C., and the idea of gossip could go against the thinking, instead of thinking godly thoughts, people sitting around Abraham or people sitting around Job or people sitting around, they could sit there around the campfire and be consumed with gossip. I mean, this, these are really, most of these are timeless, not all of them, but gossip is part of that. What about storying? Storying that is anti-virtuous. So it's not all storying, but it's storying that doesn't have virtue. You see, it's tantalizing. Maybe it's storying that intrigues you um, to, with a, with, it, it's enticing you playing on the senses. It's it's violent, perhaps, or it's horror, as we mentioned, or it's based around demonic doctrines or demonic things and ideas. It's perhaps sensual or erotic. Now, I mean, that describes most of the storying that we see in entertainment today. I mean, how popular in this day and time are stories about virtue if you just look at sheer numbers, they're very unpopular. I mean, our our minds and our world has run towards storying that is anything but virtuous most of the time. This has to do with literature that's being written from many different centuries. Novels, books, magazines, blogs that are... Storying that is not virtuous. How about cinema, film, and theater? Very often not virtuous. TV programming. And I I just want you to think through sitcoms or dramas or comedies or documentaries or what about this new thing in the last 15 years? Reality shows. I mean, just that it just plays on foolishness. I would love to tell you about. We were in the South China Sea one time uh, when we were missionaries and we had been through training and we went. And we watched for a week, we watched a group on this island. We were on a very remote island and they were using the resort that we were staying at. It was like 80 bucks a night for this beautiful resort in the South China Sea. And so we were staying there for a few days, getting some rest. And we watched the filming of a get kicked off the island um, show, whatever that reality thing was. Um, for, it was one that was being filled for Germany and for Poland. They had two different film crews there, two different storylines. And we watched all the the behind-the-scenes drama of how they were doing it and how they were saying, no, no, more argument, more argument, more fire, more fire. You know, they're, they're, they're talking about how to dramatize it up for intrigue and hatred and conflict. And we sat there just watching the way this was being produced from the back. we'd stand off to the side and watch. You know, And my girls would go away going, that's so stupid. You know, they, they would film the girl coming down the dock after she got kicked off the other line. And they said, no, no, do it again. Shoulders lower, shoulders lower. You know, I mean, it was, you know, it was just so foolish. And it was all about intrigue. And, I mean, and, and things that would, had to do with just preoccupation with conflict. Um, Friends, what happens when we keep feeding our mind on these things? You see, we think less and less like God. Games, fill that in, games that are anti-virtuous, often violent or sexual or both, or villainous, or just mindless and idle. There can be so much dissipation. Now, the games are, can be actually a great danger because it's so easy to say, "Oh, come on, it's just a what? It's just a game. I'm not really killing those people. It's just a game. I'm not really, you know, she's not real. I mean, I know she's dressed scantily in the animation, but she's not real. It's just no, but it's still, it's still all playing." On the flesh, toward violence or sensuality. You see, these are these are attacks on the things that we've just studied in the list that Paul is telling us to think about. And these are pervasive. When you start to really going, how about this next one? And this is a mind blower. The news. I don't even know if we can call it the news. I have to put it in quotes now. And, and that's not even like a Donald Trump throwout, you know, throwback or whatever. I mean, it's just it's true that. We, we're not even sure what is news anymore. I mean, what do I say about that? Obsession, think about the evening news from any channel, any outlet that you go to. Obsession with scandal, murder, crime, violence, abuse, destruction. When we were kids, in the few times that we had a TV in our house, um, Dad, you know, we, we didn't have a TV for many, many years, and it was a, a great blessing, but Dad called the 6 o'clock local news the Miami murder report. I mean, that's what he, he called. We, you know, somebody would have the news on, he'd walk in and he'd go, oh, the Miami murder report, great. Glad you're watching great things. I mean, he mocked that, and it's because night after night after night, you can sit there and go, Nadine, look at that. Can you believe it? And there's, because there's so much... Bad news. Good news doesn't sell. Um, One one key thing about the news is if it smells, it sells. If there's scandal, it sells. If not, it doesn't sell. Doesn't sell commercials, doesn't doesn't get watchers, doesn't get viewers. Under the news, strife filled opinion, bias, agenda propagation increasing, blatant, circle it, misinformation. You see, that's the opposite of truth. Increasing misinformation. So, you know, what do you do about that? It's hard to find good news outlet. That's true. You have to look and see and and, and look for perspective. I mean, we have to become very discerning. You know, how much do we need it? But, you know, sometimes I, I, I don't live in a vacuum I still need to know to some degree what's going on, but I have to be very careful that even things such as the news do not begin corrupting my thinking and poisoning me as as opposed to the truth of God. How about these last two huge ones? Social media. Social media is just like a mainline of the world's thinking, and it tends to be hyper-narcissistic. I mean, Jesus said that the love of self is going to grow, and the love for others is going to wane. Their love for others is going to grow cold, and that's what we see in social media. And so often, it's sensual—people showing how sexy they are, people showing how sensual that they can be, or covetous. It, it's you know this idea of I want what everybody else wants, or or materialistic, playing to those things. What about braggadocious? You know, that braggart, arrogant, prideful, disingenuous, mindless, very often crude, and so too often demeaning of others. You see, social media, we, we, we need to be aware. Can there be some good things from social media? Yes. But my friends, the, the more I see it, and the more I hear, and the more I, I look, I, I, I just say that Christians need to start to realize no, we're, we're called to think differently. Than the world. And the last one is YouTube and vlogger platforms. Um, this idea of uh, video logging, blogging. Um, I, and I think one of the biggest problems here is endless idleness and dissipation, ungodly humor. And the things that are so trivial, you can live your life going from YouTube thing to YouTube thing, YouTube thing. And YouTube, man, once they know who you are and kind of what you want to see, you know, they are, they have these algorithms that are masterful at presenting to you more garbage and, you know, or more mindlessness or more whatever. Now, if you're, if you're into things that are productive or you're into things that are truthful, you're into things that are helpful, that's great. But there's a lot of other stuff out there, too, that can just simply cause us not to think the things of God. And that's what this passage is all about. So we need to be mindful as Christians. Where are we spending our time? What are we feeding our mind on? That should be huge to us. We need to really consider that. Finally, I I just wanted you to see here, and and this is at the top of page 4, the priority of faithful action. And very quickly, uh, verse 9, it says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So he's calling us to faithful action. We are not called to just think about the truth, but we are called, fill it in, we are called to do it. Don't just sit around and think about it. There's some people that sit around and talk, 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 talk about the truth, and rarely do they do it. Um, That's that's not what we're called to do. Uh, Look at James chapter 4, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is what? It is sin. And so we're called to know the truth and know the right thing to do, and we're called to actually do it. This call to action is loaded with these two things. It's loaded with intentionality and faithfulness. That's what Paul is saying to us. Live your life intentional and live your life faithful. Look up at verse 9 again. Look what it says. What you have learned And you see, that's knowledge, that's thinking. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, notice the word, practice these things. Practice them. And so when you're practicing something, um, it's about being intentional. You know, the athlete doesn't practice in an unintentional way. The athlete has to practice in a very intentional way. What about the surgeon? <laughs> if somebody's going to cut your body open and mess around with things inside, don't you want him to be very intentional? In fact, it, man, good good surgeons will say, "Oh no, if it ain't fixed, I, I mean, if it ain't broke, I'm not going to try to fix it." A lot of times they'll say, "Ooh, I, I don't want to mess with that if I don't have to." We have to be very intentional about what we're doing. And that's what the Apostle Paul is calling us to, is to this intentional faithfulness. Practice these things. The Greek word for practice refers to, look at this, repetition and continuous action. So it it has to do with you're doing this. You do it all the time. You keep doing it. You keep doing it. And And that's how you get good at stuff, is you keep doing it. Notice here with me, what do we learn, receive, hear, and see in the Apostle Paul's life? That's what he says, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, what do we see what he does? Well, I mean, I think what he's, what he's kind of calling the Philippians to do is saying, man, the, th- the things that you've seen me do, Philippians, you guys do them. And what do we see the Apostle Paul doing? He's loving God. He's loving truth. He's loving people. He's loving the church. He's seeking to be genuine. He's sacrificial. He's humble. He's being intentional with his life. He's preaching the gospel. He's making disciples. He's correcting people. He's exhorting people. He's teaching the truths of God. He's encouraging. We see that he's praying. We see that he's giving. And I've left some blanks there for you this afternoon. Maybe you and your family. Go have a conversation. What else do we, when we think about the whole life of the Apostle Paul, what else do we see him doing? Because what we kind of see him doing is what he says that we should do. You see, I've kind of mentioned this, as a doctor practices medicine, as a lawyer practices medicine, law as an athlete practices a sport as a musician practices their music so a christian is to practice the things of god so it's not just about thinking them but it's about doing them a key word that is related to this terminology is the word discipline There is no practicing the things that are difficult. There is no practicing the things that are unnatural to us without discipline. And Christians are called to be disciplined. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes a great statement where he says, If you look through human history, the people who have positively affected the world didn't do it on accident. The people who positively, and especially is talking about the church through church history. The, when you look at the great people of church history who positively affected the church throughout human history, every single one of them had discipline as a key part of their life. They were disciplined in the things of God. Now, some of them were very personable. Some of them were very, maybe perhaps, very reclusive. They, they had different walks of life, different. You look at John and Charles Wesley. You look at David Brainerd. You look, you look at Martin Lloyd-Jones. And you, you look at all these different people. They had very, very different backgrounds and very, very different personalities. But they were purposeful and discipline in their life so do what is discipline discipline is doing what needs to be done doing what needs to be done when it needs to be done the way it needs to be done so what when and the way it needs to be done whether you what whether you feel like it or not you cannot run your life based upon feelings You cannot, because, you know, feelings come and go. You can't be a good employee based upon feelings, because sometimes you feel like being a good employee, sometimes you don't. You can't be a good parent based upon feelings. Sometimes you feel like doing the right thing with your kids, sometimes you don't. You have to do what's right, whether you like it or not. And nothing could be further from the truth that we can live a Christian life Without discipline. I mean, we, we are called to be a disciplined people. Christ was disciplined in his obedience to the Father. And I just want you to see here as we close that remember the great promise that is attached to this disciplined obedience. And here's the great promise as God's people think the things of God, as they do the, God's things, the peace of God will be with them. The God of peace will be with them. Both of those things are there, his peace and his presence. So, church family, in the midst of corona, in the midst of societal changes, in the midst of things in your own life that have nothing to do with corona in your life, I mean, this, this, this sermon matters um, even in the best of days in our society. True Christians are called to have their mind stayed on Christ, and to do the things that God has called us to do. May we be a people that embrace this great truth. Let's pray together. Praise team is going to come and prepare to sing one more song, but let's pray as they come. And as we pray, I want to ask you to just bow your head and close your eyes and think about what do you think about? What does your mind dwell on? What do you spend endless hours doing? Is it on the things that matter in eternity or is it on the things that simply occupy now? There are things that we can focus on that will bring great fruit. And we are called to focus on those things. Are there things that you've fed your mind on that you know war against the truths of God? Many times in my life, the Lord has revealed to me things that I need to let go. As a young man, sometimes it was music. At other times, it was stories and various things that just simply were not of God. Even as I pray this, I'm convicted about things that I know I need to just say, Lord, I don't want to stand before you having filled my mind with those things. Lord, I pray that you would increasingly cause us to think of you and to think about the things that are eternal, and to do them, that we might live all of our days in such a way that when you come, Lord, when the trumpet sounds, or Lord, when our heart stops, that we will live in such a way that we'll not be ashamed. Lord, thank you for being so intentional with us. Thank you for going to the cross so intentionally for us. Thank you for sending your Spirit so graciously to us. Lord, thank you for your grand plan to redeem us and thank you for your grace and your mercy that sustains us. May we be your people in 2020. May we honor you now, is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Those of you that are here, would you stand together and let's sing Depth of Mercy. Let me encourage you to just listen to this first verse of this song.